welcome to episode 1237 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by an almost normal-sounding Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Ah, you're back. Almost, yeah. kind of. Yeah, we'll see how you sound by the end of the episode. But right now, we're good to go. So... As we mentioned last time, we have gone a week or so without banter. It's been a while, and when you don't banter, the banter builds up. So a lot has happened in baseball, and we can't talk about all of it. But is there anything from the last week that you wanted to touch on specifically? I have a few things, but anything in your mind? Well, it'll inspire the stat blast that's coming up, but of course, Jose Alvarado did play first base, so I had... Derived great delight from that, and so uh, this the stat blast eventually turns into, I guess, like a Travis Wood fun fact. But in any case, I've looked up how often pitchers also played other positions during the game. That's fun. What else do we have? I mean, there's the discouraging Mike Trout is injured and a designated hitter news. There's the further mm-hmm. discouraging kind of Shohei Otani probably not going to pitch, but maybe yeah. hit. I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah, I don't know uh, if that was discouraging. It wasn't really encouraging either, but the idea that Billy Eplish said on an interview, I think on MLB Network Radio, that he is going to come back to hit this year, at least, it sounds like, and that he would be hitting already if it weren't for their desire to have him pitch at some point. So it sounds like we'll see Otani at some point this season. Nothing guaranteed, but I didn't take it as negative news beyond the negative news that we'd already gotten. Yeah, I guess if we only get half of Otani, he's already two times anybody else. So in a sense, we're just left with one, Shohei Otani. That's just basic algebra, right? right? Yeah, there was a fun story uh, at Deadspin by Avery Yang about Otani's BP sessions and how they're just legendary and everyone is talking odd tones about how they've never seen baseballs hit farther than Otani has hit them, that he's hitting balls like 600 feet or something close to it in batting practice. I will link to it. Go check it out. But Otani is still fun as a hitter. (laughs) So even if he comes back as a one-way player, which wouldn't be nearly as fun, it's still something. It's better than no Otani. Here's here's what I don't understand. I under like I know Shohei Otani is strong. He hits the ball fast or hard, whatever you prefer. But like he has share, he does share a roster constantly with Mike Trout. He has briefly shared a roster with Jabari Blash. There's Daniel Palka on the White Sox. More importantly, there's like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton on the same team. Are these people really not hitting the ball further <laughs> than Shohei Otani? In batting practice, I used to hear the Mariners used to drool about Carlos Peguero's batting practice sessions, which was mm-hmm. the only batting the, of his that you could <laughs> drool over yeah. unless you're an opposing pitcher. And that one made sense because you figure, well, the ball's not moving. He can hit the ball really hard. It's going to go places. Makes plenty of sense. Otani is is strong. I get it. But like, th- look, I haven't, I haven't read the article you're linking, but do mm-hmm. we really think he's hitting the ball further than anyone's ever seen? Do we really... I think this just this just plays into this living myth that I mean even mm. the reality is already convincing enough. I don't need to yeah. believe in these lies. Yeah, I mean, we heard on our interview last year with Dennis Sarfate that Otani has the best power that Sarfate has ever seen. So that's something. And he certainly has hit some long home runs. I mean, Trout hit some long home runs too, but he's not really known for hitting long home runs. He hits efficient home runs and he hits lots of home runs, but they're not really setting any distance or exit speed records. So it's conceivable that Otani is hitting the ball farther when he does hit it far, even though 
though he's not hitting it far quite as often as Trout. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What, what else? Is there anything else in Otani? I don't know. We'll probably come back to that. So we we had talked recently, I think, about Shane Bieber for some reason, right? I think <laughs> yes, that the came new up. Josh Tomlin. Yeah, the new Josh Tomlin. So Bieber is, has been good. He's made four major league starts. Three of them have been good. He's got four walks and 27 strikeouts. Those four walks probably double his like minor league total for his career. But I was reminded of, all right, do you know the name Chris Paddock? Maybe you used to know the name Chris Paddock. Yeah, I don't remember who it's associated with. That's fine. You don't have to. He was, uh, I think he was uh, the Padres return for the Marlins for Fernando Rodney. Remember when the Marlins acquired Fernando Rodney? They thought they were going places. So uh-huh. I'm just uh, going to scroll down here and confirm. Fernando Rodney traded by the Padres to the Marlins for Chris Paddock in June of 2016. Okay, so whatever. Forget about that. That was a silly move for the Marlins to make. But Chris Paddock... He had Tommy John surgery. Now, this is what Paddock did in 2016 as a starting pitcher before he got hurt. Over nine starts, he had five walks and 71 strikeouts. So he's back. He's with Lake Elsinore. This is like a high elevation Cal League minor league team. I know it's just high A ball, but anyway, nine starts this season, 46.1 innings. Remember those numbers, 46.1. Okay. Four walks, 79 strikeouts. Chris Paddock. (laughs) is working on a, uh, what is this, a strikeout minus walk rate, if that means anything to anybody, of uh, <laughs> of 43%, which uh-huh. I think puts him around like Araldis. Anyway, I, Chris Paddock, this, this is nothing, uh, Chris Paddock is not going to debut the season for the Padres, coming back from Tommy John's early, he's, uh, he's going to be on a pitch count and all that stuff. I would look for him next year, but for everyone who is excited about Shane Bieber, and based on Fangraph's search traffic, that is most of America, just know that there is going to be uh, some sort of e- weird equivalent coming up next season for the Padres. So if you love those like tiny walk rate, high strikeout guys in the minors who don't have like blow you away stuff, Paddock is the next guy. And incidentally, I did want to say because when you read about a guy like Bieber, who's, you know, control ahead of stuff and whatever in the minor leagues, everyone will say about a guy like Shane Bieber, oh, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't blow you away with the stuff. His fastball gets up to like 94 miles per hour. He throws yeah. hard. Oh, Are we just, yeah. do we not care about a guy who sits 92, 94 anymore? Is that finesse in 2018? <laughs> anyway. Pretty much is, right? I mean, what is uh, average for a right-handed starter? It's probably like, what, 93 or something around there? I guess you can quickly find out. <laughs> I can tell you the league average, maybe not for a right-handed starter, but for any starter, this year, the uh, league average starter fastball is at 92.3, so Shane Bieber is right about there. That's not finesse. Average stuff is not finesse, right? <laughs> yeah, no, if, you, if you're if you average, then I, I think you have to be below average speed to qualify as finesse, so maybe he's being wronged. Anyway, I'm sure that Fangraph's search traffic does not mirror most of America, unfortunately. Wish it did. It would probably be good for our podcast, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> here, are, here are the top six... Names top six names right now as I look at this, uh, being searched on Fangraphs. It's uh, it's 2018. Zach Eflin, Shane Bieber, Max Muncie, Shinsu Chu, Mike Trout, Jimmy Yakabonis. <laughs> <laughs> One of these players is not like the others. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing that most of America would be saying who to most of those names, including Mike Trout's name, probably sadly. <laughs> So let's see, very quickly, Zach Cozart tore his labrum, 
bad news for the Angels, more bad news for the Angels. Archie Bradley did his best to top Adrian Hauser with a George Brett-style pants-pooping story. That was entertaining. Brandon Nimmo got called back again on another hit-by-pitch, which I know that you're tracking very closely. And I think he was also hit-by-pitch legitimately what, two other times in that same game? <laughs> At so, least two. I think it was three. Yeah. Let me just confirm. I, I think it was at three, but the one didn't count. Oh, I yeah. Think. No, you're right. Yeah. So he's evidently crowding the plate in an extreme fashion and not making much of an attempt at all to get out of the way. And Nimmo in June, the month of June. You know, every, the Mets are dreadful, so we can just kind of lean into that. But, you know, Brandon Nimmo, the guy with the uh, the unbelievable eye, in the month of June, seven walks, 36 strikeouts so i don't know what's going on with brandon nimmo i think overall he's he's still hit fine in june but there is uh there's something there just uh the message here being if you like the mets don't get attached to uh what's the word anything anything it will uh <laughs> yeah. it will all let you down the mets at 32 and 46 are a game and a half ahead of the marlins who in spring training were, according to people who talked to John Heyman, the worst baseball team they had ever seen before in their entire professional lives. Yeah, if you like the Mets, don't like the Mets. <laughs> Try not to like the Mets. Usually I have a take that I've had on the Ringer MLB show before about how Mets fans are overly fatalistic and have kind of an inflated sense of their own suffering. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Mets and I know that they've had many things go wrong and the Madoff scandal and all the injuries and lots of examples of ineptitude and mismanagement. And Lindsay Adler was talking about that a bit on the most recent episode, but Comparing to teams that have had extended droughts from the playoffs that haven't ever won a World Series or haven't for decades, the Mets are just not in that class. They they were in the World Series a few years ago, and then they were in the wildcard game a couple years ago, and they've won multiple pennants in the past 20 years. The Mariners haven't ever won one. I know things have gone south since then, but anyway, I have uh, taken abuse for that take before. But yeah, things are ugly for them right now. And of course, Sandy Alderson had his cancer recur, and we hope that he turns out to be okay. But right now, the Mets are being run by, I guess, a, a trio of executives, and they're talking about trading Syndergaard and DeGrom, and it's not a good situation. No. And uh, I was thinking about terrible teams. Remember when the, the Reds were 3-18 and 18? The season? Yes. Yeah, One, actually. <laughs> well, I was going to bring this up because uh, I felt like we should talk about two teams and or players who were terrible early in the season, which we talked about, but we've not given them their due for not being terrible lately. One, the Reds, and two, your favorite, Wilmer Font, who has also kind of resurrected his season. So start with whatever you're going to say about the Reds. I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say about the Reds, but one of my favorite things to do every season is just kind of take a look at what's happened since the end of April, since everything that happens in April gets overinflated for its significance. Now, in April, for example, the Orioles and Royals were terrible. And since the end of April, what's happened is that the Orioles and Royals have remained terrible. So that's not surprising. Yeah. The Orioles are 17 and 40 cents up. And what I did was I selected the date where the Reds fell to their lowest point, which was 3 and 18. They had just mm -hmm. replaced their manager. So since then, the Reds have actually gone 31 and 28. They have 
pulled themselves up now that start ruined them there is no recovering from that (laughs) they're still in last place by a a good margin catching up to the pirates but since that date the reds have actually been better than the cardinals they've been better than the phillies better than the rockies they've been better than the uh, angels and the twins and the blue jays and all these other teams so the reds have done an admirable job of picking themselves up under jim riggleman but uh, if you are looking for a new team that's been dreadful ever since then the mets have gone 18 and 40, eight <laughs> yes. games worse than any other team in the National League. So the uh, the Mets had the hot start. The Mets and Reds have been on opposite streaks Red. here, right? Sort of like the, the Blue Jays. Hot start, yeah. build up hope, collapse in improbable fashion. So I know the report now is that the, the Mets will have to, quote, consider offers for DeGrom and Syndergaard at the deadline, which is one of those things you say to the media that doesn't mean anything. But nevertheless, yeah. what a weird thing to have to say after the first month the Mets had. Yeah, there was some point like through 12 games or something where the Mets had the best record in baseball and the Reds had the worst record in baseball. And now they have crossed as each goes in the opposite direction. Speaking of strange trajectories, Wilmer Font, one of your preseason favorites, his ERAs now with the three teams that he has played for this year. Dodgers in 10 and a third innings, 11.32 ERA. Athletics in six and two thirds innings, 14.5 ERA. Rays in 22 innings, 1.64 ERA. I'm not sure, looking at his numbers, that he is actually good or that much better, but he has stopped allowing home runs like every other inning, so that's good. Yeah, the uh, he, of the three teams, the three stat-heady teams that he's played for this year, you could say that yeah. he has his worst peripherals with the Rays. He also has his yeah. best ERA by like 10 times. He allowed five home runs in six games with the Dodgers, five and four games with the A's, only two in eight with the Rays. He has uh, he's earned the the coveted... There's a little blurb here from Rotowire. Rays manager Kevin Cash said Font will start Friday's game against the Astros and has earned the right to a permanent spot in the Tampa Bay rotation, Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times reports. Wilmer Font huh. has earned the coveted starter label for the Rays, even though for the Rays, the starter label doesn't really mean anything. Now, I don't know what to make of Wilmer Font, actually. I would like to see better numbers across the board, but I think that he needs a little of a extended luck to make up for it. I, I'm not going to blame him for all the home runs he allowed. That's just, that's just unfortunate. And it sent him to three separate homes this year alone. <laughs> it's June, three homes in three months. But anyway, I think that it's probably not a coincidence that he wound up on the A's after the Dodgers dropped him. Probably not a coincidence. He went to the Rays after the A's dropped him. He was going to find a place, and I am uh, I'm happy for the Rays, but at the same time, I know I've mentioned this before, the uh, the Rays have a current Pythagorean record of 40 mm-hmm. and 39. They have a current base runs record of 44 and 35. The Mariners have a current base runs record of 43 and 38. Worse than the Rays, the Mariners are in fact 10 games up on the Rays in the hunt for the wild card. The Mariners are up on the eight. The A's are now the second team behind the Mariners looking at the wild card. So it's not the Angels anymore. They have dropped out of the mix because of their entire team being injured. But if it weren't for, I'm just going to call it luck or I guess clutch hitting, the Mariners and the Rays and the A's would be fighting over this, this wild card bid that is instead seemingly a Mariners lock. So in mm-hmm. one sense, I'm happy about that. It's about time for the Mariners to make the playoffs. In yep. another sense, how frustrating to be the Rays and or the A's to be looking at this and thinking that this is just 
an absurdity because if they were actually in the hunt, we'd be having a very different conversation about the offseasons that they put together. Yeah, and how many teams, I wonder, are looking at the Indians and envying their situation too? Because I wrote about this for the Ringer this week. The Indians are the sole non-terrible team in the AL Central, which to this point in the season is the worst division in baseball history, or at least going back to the beginning of the divisional era in 1969. I had the numbers in the article if you're interested, but essentially AL Central teams have been outscored by an average of 1.2 runs per game against non-AL Central opponents. That is really, really bad. That would be the worst ever for a division combined. And their strength of schedule is only getting harder from here on out. Now, of course, a lot of those teams, every team in the division except the Tigers, has underplayed its projections and underplayed its even midseason updated projections. And as you wrote at Fangraphs this year, trust the midseason projections. They still tell you more than in-season record, even at this point in the season. So if you are a Nationals fan or a Dodgers fan or a Cubs fan or anyone whose team was favored and has perhaps underperformed in some sense, odds are still pretty good that those teams are going to be on top at the end of the year. But the Indians just haven't really played all that well looking at all of their underlying numbers, and they've kind of been propped up by the division. So they've got more wins against the Tigers, Royals, and White Sox combined than they do against every other team in baseball collectively. And they have a sub-500 record outside the division Now, those are fairly small samples, so I don't want to make too much of it. But the point is that there are a lot of teams that are as good as or better than the Indians, or at least better than they've played thus far this year, who would probably be in playoff position if they were in the AL Central, and they're not. And this is a scenario I think we talked about before this season, right? We talked about trading divisions and if teams could do that, if they could swap and say, hey, you can be in the AL Central this year and I'll take the AL East because I'm not going to win anything anyway, what that would be worth. This is that in action. The AL Central, I think, historically has been the the most often dreadful division. So in a sense, it restores them to their previous standing, the AL East. (laughs) historically has been a very strong division and it's uh, not a surprise they have the Yankees and the Red Sox battling there but yeah it's a uh, it's fun to go back and have that think about that division conversation again because what if you could do it mid-season like right now the A's are seven <laughs> yeah. games behind the Mariners for the wild card that's a that's a big gap to make up in 81 games remaining what if what would the A's have to trade to the Indians who as I think about it, Indians, not at all incentivized to change divisions here. (laughs) They like it exactly where they are. But if you could trade with, I don't know, the Twins, who are looking to reload, but they've had a very disappointing season, you don't want to trade with, like, the Royals, because you want to beat up on the Royals. So you have to trade with, I guess, the best team other than the Indians in that division, which would be the Twins. what Mm -hmm. What would the A's have to trade to the Twins to have the advantage of playing the Tigers, White Sox, and Royals a little extra down the stretch. And I don't I don't really know, but if that's like a couple of wins, that's the same price you'd pay for a rental starting pitcher. Yeah, well, we could probably figure out roughly what it would be worth, right, by looking at the Fangrass playoff odds page and the projected strength of schedule. So right now for the rest of the season, Indians have the easiest projected strength of schedule. Twins, I think, are either second easiest or right around there. I guess the Nationals are up there, too. So Twins have a 483 
winning percentage strength of schedule. So the teams that they are projected to play over the rest of the season have a 483 projected winning percentage, and then the A's are at 516. So that's a pretty significant difference, right? So 516 minus 483, that is 33 points of winning percentage, which if we just say 81 games and the Twins, I guess, actually have uh, more games remaining because they had a bunch canceled or postponed early in the season. But that is like between two and three, maybe three-ish wins. So that's something that's... uh, I guess you'd give up as much for that as you'd give up for a two to three win player or not even a two to three win player, like a four to six win player who would be worth two to three wins over half a season. Yeah, so we can actually do this. So Fangraphs has two two projections pages, one that accounts for remaining schedule and one that doesn't. So when you account for, if I'm just writing this math on the fly, when you account for remaining schedule, the Twins get a 1.6 win benefit between now and the end of the season. That's 1.6 wins from their schedule alone. Meanwhile, for the A's, when you fold in their schedule, they're at negative 1.2 wins. So their schedule is going to cost them 1.2 wins, according to these estimates over the remainder of the season. So yeah, that comes right out to 2.8, or basically three wins over half the season. Mm-hmm. That's like, I don't know, the Johnny Cueto trade or something from a few years ago yeah. that the Royals made. You look at the Twins' schedule now, and as I look at this, they have, unfortunately, 10 games remaining against the Indians. Those are the hard ones. They have eight more against the White Sox. They have 13 more against the Tigers, and they have 16 more against the Royals. So, yeah, (laughs) if you're the A's, you want that. You want that something terrible so that you can maybe... Try to catch up to the Mariners, whose remaining schedule is uh, is pretty pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. It's uh, one of the toughest uh, that's left. If you're the Twins, you don't care anymore because the Twins are like I don't know, 13 games or something behind the Mariners in the wild card hunt. So that's over. If you're the A's, that'd be a big trade to make. I wonder. Yeah, is there a rule that says you can't do this? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I would think this is something that was thought of at some point. Seems like something that might have happened in the the early days of baseball that is just not allowed anymore. But another factor that this isn't even considering is that those teams in the AL Central are likely to get worse talent-wise over the rest of the season because we're a month away from the trade deadline. And if anything, they will be shedding players. So they will probably be even easier opponents to face in the second half of the season. So yeah, put it at three wins or something. That is uh, pretty significant. I realize I didn't even account for the fact that if the A's traded places with the Twins, not only would they be trying to catch up to the Mariners, but of course they're barely behind the Indians. So then the Indians would be incentivized to keep the A's out of the division. So then Mm. I wonder if the Indians would have to trade something to the Twins to make sure that they don't swap, but then the Tigers could uh, (laughs) They should be able to do this. I know that it would ruin everything, but they should be able to do this. (laughs) Yes. Divisional musical chairs. (laughs) One quick follow-up on Shane Bieber and his fastball velocity. So I did find on Baseball Savant that the average right-handed starter this year, his average four-seamer has been 93.0 miles per hour, exactly 93. And Bieber is at 92.6 with his fastball. So technically, I guess he qualifies as finesse, below average velocity. So everyone below average is finesse. 49% (laughs) of all pitchers are finesse pitchers. If they have finesse, there are guys who don't throw hard and can't (laughs) command it either, and those guys are bad. So 
Yeah. Speaking also of guys who have had a lot of homes this year and in their careers generally, Wilmer Font has nothing on Edwin Jackson, who is back in the big leagues and has now pitched for the A's. And the A's are his 13th major league team. So he has now tied Octavio Dotel for the all-time record. And I believe he's four years younger than Dotel was when Dotel pitched for his 13th team, although he's also probably worse than Dotel was in their respective roles. But Edwin Jackson still hanging around somehow and one of the oddest career paths you will ever see. And I am rooting for him to get that 14th team. No guarantee because I'm not sure that many teams want Edwin Jackson pitching for them right now, but he's got time to hang around and find number 14 somehow, somewhere. And he came up and he had his emergency start with the A's, which was good. He had no walks. He had seven strikeouts. Now I know it wasn't the strongest opponent, but when you, you look at Edwin Jackson, and right now he's still, he's 34 years old, which is not so old. His fastball is 94 miles per hour still. Edwin Jackson still huh. has the stuff above that Above average. Had. Yeah. Finesse. <laughs> above average for a righty starter. Edwin <laughs> yeah. Jackson has the same stuff he had when he was like the flame-throwing electric rookie when he was in his 20s with the Dodgers. His fastball is just as hard, if not harder. His slider is harder. He has a cutter now that's, by the way, 92 miles huh. per hour. His curveball is still there. His changeup is harder than it ever was. I don't know. Look, there are obviously things that are wrong with Edwin Jackson. You don't make it to 13 teams if you're great. You also don't make it to 13 teams if you're terrible. So Mm -hmm. Edwin Jackson has something going for him. And you could say, since he's still 34 years old, which older than me, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. Call him young. He's still young enough to salvage. You just make one mechanical tweak. You could look at him and say he could have another 10 years. Yeah. All right. One last thing I wanted to say before we get to emails. I wrote about this for The Ringer on Friday, so you can go check that out. But to summarize, remember when the 2018 free agent class was going to be the greatest thing ever and was just so highly touted and was going to reshape baseball and change everything and possibly even save the current free agent system which seems to be broken and is causing lots of labor unrest it is not looking so hot right now it really relative to what it was when we all started getting hyped up about it it is just kind of a a shadow of its former self still good players and intriguing players but it's just not what it was and I went back and I read Jeff Passan's article from December 2015 and he kind of got this anticipation rolling he said or at least his headline said why the incredible class of 2018 will change MLB as we know it And I just don't think it will anymore because you look at the names in this class and virtually everyone who is mentioned in Jeff's article from a few years ago just doesn't command the kind of contract now that he might have then. It's like almost everyone in this article. And so, you know, there are guys who have tailed off a bit. There are guys who have completely collapsed. I'll just cite this or I'll I'll read some of what Jeff wrote here and 
Of course, I should say, first of all, that Jose Fernandez was expected to be in this class. And so, you know, that story obviously goes beyond baseball and reminds us how fleeting life is as well as how fleeting on-field performance is. But even aside from Fernandez, you had Bryce Harper and Josh Donaldson, who were the reigning MVPs at the time that Jeff wrote that article, still players who will get contracts and good contracts this winter, but not quite where they were then. I think Donaldson obviously has had a very poorly timed injury year. He had the shoulder issue. He wasn't hitting. Then he hurt his calf. He just had a setback and he's out for a while longer. He's going to be 33 in December, I believe. Harper is having kind of a strange, not that great season. He had another one of those seasons in 2016, and last year he was good, but he also got hurt. And then even since his 2015 season, which to this point is his only like superstar level season, you wrote and Rob Arthur wrote after the fact that in a sense it wasn't quite as impressive as it seemed on the surface because his results kind of outstripped what he should have done based on his batted balls. So I don't know, you can't call Harper disappointing, I don't think, except that people expected him to be the best player ever, but he is still 26 and will get lots of money, but maybe not quite as much as it looked like he made a few years ago. Then there was Dallas Keuchel, who was a reigning Cy Young Award winner and over the past few years has been more of a mid-rotation starter who gets hurt now and then. We've talked about Kershaw ad nauseum, obviously. We don't know whether he will opt out, but with all the injuries and the diminished stuff, if he does opt out, it, it won't be for the kind of money that he might have gotten once. And David Price, Jason Hayward, other opt-out guys we've talked about as hypotheticals and you know neither of them is what he was in the past maybe price could consider opting out but he's not going to get an enormous deal at this point and you just go down the list now machado still obviously a, a really good player i don't know if he's quite turned into what we all thought and hoped he might yet but he still could even though he doesn't really seem to be a good shortstop anymore you know, he'll get lots of money, but maybe, again, hasn't really helped his stock since 2015. Then you go on the list, it's Andrew McCutcheon, Adam Jones, Michael Brantley kind of having a resurgence, Craig Kimbrell. But then there are just a, a lot of names on this list that you wouldn't even, I mean, Glenn Perkins is in this article. He's retired now. Carter Capps might as well be. Andrew Miller has been hurt. And it goes on and on. D. Gordon, Hunter Pence, Adrian Gonzalez. These are not players anyone really wants anymore. And then even guys like Brian Dozier and Yasmani Grandal having down years. Charlie Blackman and Gene Segura signed extensions, so they're off the market. And A.J. Pollock has been hurt. So it's just not at all what it looked like it would be. And there are very few guys, maybe with the exception of, I don't know, Patrick Corbin, who really look a lot better now than they did then. It was interesting to think about where this market was going to go, but you just can't, even then, I get why this was an appealing angle, but you can't forecast a free agent market. And I know it's easy yeah. to say now after the fact, because we know all these players have disappointed. The Blue Jays won't, maybe won't even be able to trade Josh Donaldson now for anything yeah. This season, I know, I know that this is partly after the fact, but even then, it was so hasty because you're looking years ahead of yourself, and baseball players get better or collapse just all the time, right? All the time. 
Yeah, I have a, a graph in my article if you want to go check it out. It's like the the percentage of four war players in a given year who repeat as four war players in the next year and two years after and three years after. That line trends down really, really quickly. And that's not even like superstar. That's like, you know, all-star-ish level. If you're at that level, there's a really good chance that you're not going to be at that level the next year, let alone two or three years in the future. Let's put it this way. You could say, on the one hand, when you identify some really, really good future free agents, you're saying, I am looking at the best players in baseball. But if you want to look at it from more of a statistical perspective, you could say, I have chosen all of these extreme baseball players, and whenever you have extreme data points, there are a lot of forces that are pulling them back to average or even below that, depending on your perspective. And so, so many of these players, for one reason or another, whether it's performance or health or aging or, or all of them, they have gotten worse. They've regressed back to the average. And now I don't know what you do with, like, you look at Bryce Harper and in a sense this season is it's just a like a batting average on balls in play thing and he should be better than this. But also in May and mm-hmm. June, his, his approach has just gotten a lot worse. In April, he walked mm-hmm. twice as much as he struck out and things have just gone sideways since then. He's had a bad June. People talk about, even Kevin Long, his sitting coach, has talked about how, oh, you know, he's just, just doing that thing where he, he's pulling off the ball and he's not getting the pitches away like he used to. But, you know, Harper just does this sometimes. Well, that's like that matters because yeah, he, right. only once, only once based on the service numbers has he been really consistent. And mm-hmm. I don't know what season Harper needed to have in order to guarantee himself like a $400 million contract, but... It's not this season, no. so he's going to need a, a wild second half. Manny Machado has had a, a rough June. He just got mm-hmm. booed by his own fans for not running out a double play ball the other day. Now, yeah. this is Baltimore. I would imagine that most of what anyone is doing is booing if they're not there to cheer on the opponent. <laughs> yeah. And I, I understand if you're Machado, it's probably difficult to motivate yourself to the same degree every day for a team yeah. like this. But, you know, has Machado ever been considered like the shining light in a clubhouse? Is he like the greatest influence? It gets complicated. But the point here is that never forecast a free agent class more than, I don't know, three months in advance because things change. And I know (laughs) that you need stuff to write about, but uh, it's just a bad idea. Yeah, and well, I guess we're slightly more than three months away from this free agent class, so who knows what will happen. Maybe Donaldson will come back and Harper will be great and everyone will be amazing down the stretch, Kershaw, and uh, this will look different by the end of the year, but probably won't look like it used to. And it's kind of unfortunate, A, because it would have been fun to see that happen, but also because with all the concerns now about baseball's free agent structure just not working anymore the way that it used to, I think last winter people were saying, well, this is a weak free agent class and next year it will be better and maybe the numbers will look a little more like they used to. And now, not so much. It doesn't look like this is going to be a a panacea of any sort. I have one more thing to talk about before we get to emails, which I know means we're going to barely get to any emails. (laughs) But I had mentioned uh, Chris Paddock and I mentioned Uh his minor league numbers. So you remember in February, the Rays made that big three-team Steven Souza trade sent players yeah. all over the place. So the Rays got Anthony Bonda, which he looked good, but then he got hurt. They did also get a guy. I don't know if you've read about this guy yet. Colin, I think it's Poach. Have you have you heard about Colin Poach or Poche? I believe just, so. Just going to go with Poach. Okay, Colin Poach, he is uh he's just a 24-year-old lefty reliever who does not throw very hard. So 
you know, right there, whatever. His his baseball reference photograph is a picture of him on the Hillsborough Hops, a local minor league affiliate here who were in the very low minors. He was a fifth-round draft pick by the Orioles in 2012, and then the Diamondbacks took him in the 14th round in 2016. Anyway, long story short, Colin Posh has thrown 41.1 innings this season, and he struck out 53% of his opponents. He's barely walked anyone. His strikeout minus walk rate is by far the best in the minor leagues for everyone with at least 30 innings thrown. His ERA is 0.65. His FIP is better than that. He's been pitching in double A and triple A. He's been in triple A with the Durham Bulls. He's even made a couple uh, little like two inning starts for the Durham Bulls, the uh, the Rays affiliate. Maybe not a coincidence. Maybe he could be up to be one of their uh, openers down the stretch. But Colin Posh, I'll probably have to write about him because the numbers are so extraordinary. I can't put it off any longer before he gets discovered by other people. But this year against lefties, his own handedness, he's allowed a 435 OPS against righties. Opposite handedness, it's 334. And I've looked at video of him before. I don't get it. I know people say he's deceptive, <laughs> like there's something you can't pick up the ball. I don't know why. I have absolutely no idea why. In the minors, like the video isn't as great as you want it to be anyway. So maybe maybe there's more and better video since he got up to AAA. I haven't checked, but there's just just know that there's something about this guy that makes it really really hard for the batters to see the ball because this is not a fluke. Last year in advanced A ball, he struck out 37% of his opponents. In in regular A ball, he struck out 47% of his opponents. He strikes out batters all the time. Doesn't issue when he walks. I I think, well, he's not a grand ball guy, but whatever. That doesn't really matter when nobody hits the ball in play. Yeah. He's given up three professional home runs, one over the last year and a half. Something about Colin Posh is tremendously difficult to understand. I am going to uh, try to understand it because he could be the next big thing for the Tampa Bay Rays. Maybe he'll open for Wilmer Font or maybe vice versa. <laughs> I can always count on you to discover these guys before anyone outside their own organization notices. And that is actually a perfect segue into an email question, which is about one of these guys whom I believe you wrote about before he became known for being one of these guys. So this is from Nick, who says, Jonathan Holder. How? This year was supposed to be all about Robertson, Chapman, Green, Canely, and Betances. Here comes Holder, who hasn't given up an earned run since April 21st. That's 26-plus innings. He doesn't flash plus speed like the other guys and doesn't seem to have any plus pitch. So how is he doing this? Small sample, generic bullpen guy who is a flash in the pan. What gives? Well, Jonathan Holder has been... (laughs) He's a what's a good name here? He's been Colin Posh in the past. Yeah, in the in the minor leagues, I must have written about him after 2016 because he went through high A and double A and triple A, and he was absolutely dominant in 2016 mm-hmm. in the minor leagues. Came up, did not have a, a great cup of coffee in the majors. Eight games that were mediocre, but he was absolutely dominant in 2016. He struck out something like 45 percent of his opponents, barely any walks. So he was already dominant now he's come up to the major leagues and he's throwing as hard as he did in 2016 he's still getting his fastball around 93 miles per hour but he has he's turned basically a a cutter into a slower slider he's moved away from throwing a curveball and he's replaced it with a changeup so he's he's made a few tweaks to his repertoire but basically Jonathan Holder in the past against advanced competition was already dominant and so with the Yankees now he's just also turning into someone who looks dominant. I will point out 
that last year in the majors and this year in the majors, his strikeouts and walks almost identical. He was a pretty good reliever last season who gave up maybe one or two too many home runs, but his uh, his peripherals last year and this year, more or less the same. So I wouldn't even Mm -hmm. say that this is a surprise. Yeah. All right. Next question from Michael. I've been tracking Brandon Nimmo's status for a while, okay, daily, and he only just technically qualified for the leaderboards today. This was June 21st. He was tops in the NL in WRC+, behind only Betts and Trout at that point. Michael says, curious as to your thoughts on whether this is still a meaningful distinction, qualifying, which is 3.1 plate appearances per team game. Obviously, we need something to filter out guys with 40 plate appearances, but once we get to late June, you're losing guys like Nimmo, who was part-time to start the season, or early injury guys that have plenty of plate appearances but not, quote-unquote, enough. There were MLB and team-released graphics put out yesterday for things like OPS leaders that omitted Nimmo, but I feel like a more casual fan would have preferred to know Nimmo's right up there and doesn't really care that it's 100 fewer plate appearances, especially when we have counting stats like war that assess value and take into account playing time. Do we really need such a high bar for qualifying? Well, no, we don't. And (laughs) this is, I think, what, I don't know if you have, but Sam has written about this before, how qualified hitters and pitchers are reducing in number because uh, particularly pitchers yeah pitchers aren't throwing as many innings but also position players mostly they're not out there trying to play every day or even Mm -hmm. almost every day so i mean i don't i don't think i very often use the qualifier threshold when i'm writing i just use something that's consistent maybe if it's early in the season i'll say 100 plate appearances or later i'll say 250 it kind of depends on the number that you're you're looking at Mm because if you're looking at like swing rate then you want uh, you can be happy with a smaller sample. If you're looking at something like WRC+, Plus. you probably want a bigger sample. But yeah, I, I know that I don't you really use the qualified threshold very often, and I don't think that you do either. I use it occasionally. I do try to go for some actual number of plate appearances that isn't entirely arbitrary, but it's always somewhat arbitrary. I mean, we need something. We need some kind of cutoff and... I don't mind having a standard one that we all know what it means, even if it is kind of arbitrary. So I wouldn't want to do away with it entirely. I could see maybe lowering it slightly. And, you know, you should just be wary of who is missing from the list. And if you're kind of trying to dig deeper, there are probably better things to use. But uh, I don't know, for, for things like batting titles or whatever. I mean, there's a a historical standard that I think is somewhat valuable just to keep it consistent, even though now so few pitchers actually qualify. And so that is kind of a problem when you're trying to judge them against past pitchers, but it also shows the change in the game. So that has some value too. So I think we need something for qualifying, but uh, I don't pay that close attention to the specific number, no. Yep. All right, question from Steve in Houston, who says, As an Astros fan, I got excited when AA player Randy Cesar broke the AA record for longest hitting streak, which is now 41 and counting as of their All-Star break. The hitting numbers for this corner infielder look strong, 354, 390, 547. But Cesar, who is a Dominican signee, 
just reached AA in his sixth year in the minors. He broke the record set by Bobby Trevino, who had a 37-game hitting streak back in 1969 for the El Paso Sun Kings, whose major league career covered 40 at-bats, a 225 average, and .1 war. If the name seems familiar, you're probably thinking of his brother, Alex Trevino. And I'll be honest, I wasn't thinking of either Trevino. <laughs> and Randy Cesar did not make a Fangraphs list of top Astros prospects last spring, so... Is a hitting streak any indication that he could turn into something bigger than he is now? I knew nothing about Randy Cesar, so I asked Eric Longenhagen, who is one of the people responsible for those Fangrass prospect rankings, and Eric says, Potential corner bench guy, pull-heavy power, fringe glove at third base, aggro approach, sporting like a 450 BABIP or something close to it. And that is true. He has a 435 BABIP. So it's never a bad thing to have a hitting streak, and it's never a bad thing to have a 41-game hitting streak, but I don't think it means that he is suddenly more than a fringy prospect now. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that, although I'll point out that because he is with the Astros, there is maybe something to be said about the Astros player development and how they are. Yeah. According to some people I've talked to who are in baseball, the Astros seem like they're just like light years ahead of everyone else mm -hmm. in terms of making their players good. There's a guy, Josh James, who is uh, an Astros prospect in uh, AAA right now. And I think, I don't know exactly, I'm just eyeballing it, but Josh James, he was a 34th round pick. Now, he was the first pick of the 34th round in 2014. So, you know, relative to those other 34th rounders, he was something. But he was the 1,006th draft pick in 2014. He's a 6'3 righty. And what he's doing in AAA right now is he's got a 3-2-0 ERA, and he's striking out 36% of his opponents with not a whole lot of walks. He was just as dominant in AA. Josh James has come out of nowhere to throw really hard with a full repertoire, and he's striking out everybody. So he is a good example of the Astros' player development. He's like, I don't know, they're like 30th best prospect, and he's better yeah. than almost every pitching prospect that you could find around baseball. So the Astros are doing something. I don't know if that applies to Randy Cesar, but it's at least something when a 23-year-old hitter has come out of nowhere to have the best offensive half season of his career. Could mean something because with the Astros, it could always mean something. Mm -hmm. All right, stat blast. Stat blast. So you yeah. have one. I do, but give me your Waxahachi swap stats first. Okay. Well, first I'll tell you, I was uh, I was sorting some minor league numbers because I'm intrigued by Colin Poche, and uh, <laughs> I know I know it's a uh, it's kind of cliche to go over minor league names, but I've seen a name unlike any name I've seen before. So I'm just gonna say this name. I don't know anything about him or her. Probably him. <laughs> minor league player, 22 years old, 38.2 innings pitched. Franklin Van Gerp. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all I got. So, okay, stat blast. Jose Alvarado for the Rays played first base the other day for one batter. This is a somewhat classic Waxahachie swap. I don't think the Waxahachie swap requires a player to go to the outfield. It's just any other position, right, temporarily. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's usually the outfield because you can stick someone out there and probably not have a ball hit to him, but yeah. Yeah, right, that's the thinking. So the Rays had Jose Alvarado. He was brought on to close 
Alvarado's left-handed, and to start the ninth of a one-nothing game, he walked Bryce Harper, and then he was sent to first base for one batter while a slider machine Chaz Rowe, that's a Jeff Sullivan find, believe in that yes. slider. Chaz Rowe came in to strike out Anthony Rendon. Alvarado came back to the mound from first base to face two more lefties. Now, they both singled against Alvarado. He was removed. Alvarado was brought in to face three lefties. He retired exactly none of them. Anyway, Jose Alvarado played first base. That was intriguing. And using the baseball reference play index, it's possible to search when pitchers have played other positions in the same game. So I did that, and when I did that, I was reminded that Brian Mitchell played a whole inning at first base <laughs> last year for the Yankees in the 10th inning because the Yankees were shorthanded. It was extras. They didn't have many available relievers. Brian Mitchell dropped a foul pop-up almost immediately. It was great. Anyway, so I was curious, pitchers playing other positions in the same game. Catcher. And so I searched for not only pitchers who play this position, but pitchers who pitched and played another position in the same game. Catcher never happened. No pitcher has ever also caught in the same game. Maybe not a surprise. There have been 20 games where a pitcher played first base, most recently, just the other day. There have been three games where a pitcher played second base, most recently, 1970. One game where a pitcher played shortstop, Bill Pertica, in 1922. Ten games where a pitcher played third base, most recently, 1971, 23 games where a pitcher played left field. Most recently, Brian Dunsing and Steve Ciszek a couple weeks ago for the Cubs. Seven games where a pitcher played center field. 16 games where a pitcher played right field. Tony Sipp did that in 2014. Pitcher has never also been the DH because I'm pretty sure that's not allowed. There have been 536 times a pitcher has pinch hit and then come into pitch. Travis Wood was the most recent one to do that in 2016, and 114 times pitcher has entered as a pinch runner and then taken over to pitch. Most recently, Travis Wood in 2015. So that's what I got. I have not looked up the circumstances of why, say, Bill Pertica pitched and played shortstop in 1922. I would think that back then maybe someone like died of influenza. Perhaps <laughs> I can look that up. There's also, uh, I believe it's Bill Shantz. Is that the the right name? Bobby Shantz. I don't Bobby know Chance. exactly what there it was. Bill Shantz. Yeah, there was. I don't know exactly what it was in 1958 that allowed Bobby Shantz to play center field. I think it was the last game of the season, but he never played a non-pitcher position again in his career. So there's something to explore there. But in any case, that is the position-by-position position rundown we have had. 39 appearances of a pitcher playing the corner outfield, 20 at first base. I think the intuition is that you'd rather have a pitcher in the corner outfield. Maybe you can keep the ball away from them, but I don't know. First base, if you have a righty at the plate, maybe the first baseman isn't going to get too many opportunities. Something to think about in this era of the shifts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and pitchers should be capable of catching a throw from an infielder. Maybe they're not going to be out there scooping, but... They can play catch. They do it every day. I've seen it. So you'd think that uh, now teams don't trust them even to catch pop-ups, which in theory they should be capable of doing too. But <laughs> anyway, it was fun to see, and Alvarado seemed to be enjoying it. So I, uh, I applaud the race for doing strange things. Agreed. All right. And my stat blast is inspired by listener Matthew, who says Danny Santana's recent promotion. Remember Danny Santana? He is with the Braves now. So Matthew says his promotion led me to his baseball reference page and his year-by-year -year war totals. He had an excellent rookie year with 3.9 wins above replacement, but unfortunately, he has since given almost all of it back in negative war. Four years later, his career war is just 0 0.2. 
So my question is, how unprecedented is this? Has a player ever been worth four war his rookie year and then finished his career with negative war? My guess would be a pitcher would be more likely because they're more volatile. So does that make Santana's case even more impressive? Sad, but impressive. So this was another stat blast listener email answered by Dan Hirsch of the Baseball Gauge, who is essentially the unofficial sponsor of the Stat Blast at this point. So I asked him for two things. I asked him for the highest rookie war for a player who eventually retired with a career negative war and just the highest single season war period for a player who eventually finished with a negative career war. So the highest rookie war for a career negative guy, Bob Gilks. 1887, three war, and he was eventually worth negative (laughs) 1.1. Now you know the name Bob Gilks. We can move on. The modern person who is next on this list is Alex Cintron. Remember Alex Cintron? 2003, he was worth 2.7 war, and he ultimately finished at negative 2.2. So he really gave a lot of it back. So then just scanning down the list, you've got a a guy who came up during World War II, makes sense, 1944, Charlie Shands. And then you have another modern guy, Reed Brignac, 2010. He was worth two and a half war, and he is now at negative 0.5 war. And then you got Dick Drott, 1957, Wayne Simpson, 1970, Coco Laboy, 1969, and uh, some other people you've never heard of. And then on the list of the highest single-season war ever, and this is, again, guys with career-negative war, Cito Gaston in 1970 was worth 5.1 wins above replacement, and he ultimately retired with negative 0.8. Good then you lord! Have, yeah, he, he went down quickly. Then you've got Bob Barr, 1890, 4.8 war, Carl Drews, 1952, 4.2 war. Johnny Babich, 1944 war. Bill Bailey, 1909. Gene Dale, 1915. Tricky Nichols, 1877. (laughs) (laughs) George Wright, 1983. And Max Suzuki, 2000. He was worth 3.2 war. And uh, he, well, he finished with zero war. So I guess he wasn't technically a negative guy. And then Hal Gregg, 1945, with three. So that's it. It is uh, not a very distinguished list. But we know now that if Danny Santana does get to negative territory, and I hope for his sake he doesn't, but if he does, he will be by far the best rookie season for a guy with a negative war career. And he'll be pretty high even on the all-time single-season leaderboard. So something to watch with Danny Santana, I suppose. And all thanks to a rookie season bap up of 4.05. I think we knew that was a mirage at the moment. Yes, I I think we did. All right. Speaking of other stats I didn't know, we got a Peter Moylan question. Haven't been thinking a whole lot about Peter Moylan, but Savan says, I noticed that last year Peter Moylan pitched 59 and a third innings and in a league-leading 79 games. Despite this, his win-loss record was 0-0. What's the record for most innings or games pitched in a season without a single decision? I know we're not supposed to care about pitching wins and losses, but this is a weird chance event that's still, I think, pretty fun. And he adds also, and maybe this is in fact more interesting, Peter Moylan is quietly the oldest player in the National League. If nobody older appears in the NL this year, seeing as his birthday is in December, he'll be the first oldest player 
ever in either league under 40 since Ron Fairley was 39 in 1978. You have to go back to the 19th century to find a league without someone who was at least 38. So that's kind of interesting. I guess it makes Bartol Colon even more of an outlier, but baseball is kind of getting younger, or at least the production is concentrated among younger players. So Peter Moylan, the oldest player in the National League, I definitely didn't know that. But as for the question, most games without a decision, Peter Moylan last year was second on that list, and first is Kind of as you would expect, I suppose, Randy Choate. In 2012, he pitched in 80 games, so one more than Moylan, and he did not have a decision. And if you go by innings pitched, Moylan is fourth on that all-time list with 59 and a third innings without a decision. The leaders there, Larry Anderson with the 1982 Mariners. He got to 79 and two-thirds innings without one. And Anthony Bass in 2015 and Rick Bauer in 2003. So Peter Moylan. (laughs) Didn't expect to be talking about Peter Moylan on the podcast today, probably. Definitely had no idea. It was the oldest one. No, me neither. I guess, how often do you ever think about breaking things up by league? Anyway, I never really do that. that And then I get, I run into the trouble when I'm talking about like the best pitcher in baseball. I want to say he's the best pitcher in the league, but the right. league is both the umbrella term and the subset term, so it always uh, it yeah. just gets weird and complicated. Writer complaints. Yeah. All right. Jacob says, with how much talk there's been about the DH and specifically pitcher hitting on the podcast in recent weeks, a friend and I have been having a specific debate. Let's say there's a situation where it's the ninth inning with the bases loaded and two outs. Would you rather have a pitcher batting or a position player pitching? Ah. Some quick yeah, some quick stats to help out. Pitcher batting line as of June 24th when this email was sent, they had a 279 OPS. And position players pitching through that same date, they had an 8.66 ERA. And they had held position players to a 983 OPS. So basically, hitters had hit like Freddie Freeman against position player pitchers. So... Which would you rather have or which would you rather not have, I guess, is the better question. Incidentally, the uh, the National League's best hitting team for pitchers so far, the Philadelphia Phillies, with a team at WRC Plus of two, <laughs> number two. Okay, yeah. so pitcher hitting or position player pitching. Pitcher hitting, you're likely to make an out 82, yes. 85% of the time. Yeah. Position player pitching. You're likely to get the out. I'll take the position player pitching. Yeah, I think, I guess I'd go with that too. Yeah, I guess I would. I mean, either situation is extremely undesirable. It's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you're you're kind of in trouble either way. But I think you're right because, I don't know. I mean, I guess you get lucky either way. But at least with a position player pitcher, you can just kind of get a ball hit at someone, I guess, with a pitcher hitter you can have a ball not hit at someone but you have to actually hit the ball which for a lot of pitchers is a problem yeah so on the one hand we know that when we the numbers don't help so much because when position players are pitching generally it's a low leverage situation and the opponents aren't trying very hard so that's one consideration but on the other hand when pitchers are at the plate the opposing pitcher kind of lets up a little bit and also pitchers never face like closers so yeah. just the idea of like Craig Kimbrell facing <laughs> like Zach Eflin, yeah, it's not. I'll take yeah. I definitely take the position player. No question anymore. It's yeah. absolutely the position player. Yeah. 
All right, Josh says, this is probably a weird question. It is like not even in the top 30% of questions for weirdness that we've gotten (laughs) lately. But when y'all watch games, which I'd imagine you do very frequently, do you listen to broadcasters or are you usually doing other things at the same time? I watch a few games a day, including the team I follow, and very rarely do I turn on the sound to listen to the commentators talk. I usually listen to music or will be watching other things at the same time, but I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only people who does this ironically i plan on going into baseball broadcasting and journalism i'm currently a high school senior just wanted to know about how you two do it since i know you also watch a good amount and i don't know about you but i'm kind of in the carson sistuli school when it comes to this which is that i miss the commentary when it's not there even if i'm not necessarily paying that close attention to what's being said it's still kind of a cue it's still I mean, often I am doing other things. I'm, you know, second screening or third screening or doing some work or talking to someone. And so having the commentary helps me pay attention to what is going on, even if I don't have my eyes on the screen all the time. And I can look at a game and understand what's going on, but still having someone tell me this is the count and here's what just happened, even if it's on the screen on the Chiron, I still find it helpful to have that soundtrack. Yeah, I agree with that. I never really listen to the announcers for the words that they're saying, but it's just kind of like a white noise. It's like I, I sleep now every yeah. night with a fan that's on in the room, even if it's uh-huh. cold. doesn't really matter. But when the fan isn't on, it's harder to, to fall asleep. Yeah. So I I know that there's like a whole cottage industry on Twitter of just making fun of things that the announcers say, and mm-hmm. I get it. I've moved past that. I think that was very Fire Joe Morgan like 15 years. <laughs> can we still make Fire Joe Morgan references? I yes, think it's getting, always is this too this. far? <laughs> yes. Just the other day, I made a choose your own adventure reference, and I don't know how many more generations <laughs> are going to be able to get that. Anyway, I don't I don't listen to announcers very closely, very often, and I certainly don't like to be critical of them because it's a very difficult job. But yeah, it, I can't, just like having the, the park overlay on MLB TV, doesn't do it for me. Something is definitely missing. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got maybe three more. If we go two minutes each, we can do this thing. So Kyle says, what if pitchers had some kind of amnesia? So this is kind of following up on our question from last week about what if pitchers just couldn't tell which hitter was in the batter's box. <laughs> what if pitchers had some kind of amnesia where they couldn't remember any previous plate appearances or the pitch they just threw? How would it affect their arsenals? Would they only throw fastballs? Would it eliminate the effects of tunneling? Assuming they didn't just throw fastballs, would they be even better because they'd have no discernible pattern and be less predictable? Assume that catchers and managers and coaches would have the same affliction or not be calling pitches. Well, I think that it would be less random because pitchers would want to default to their fastballs. I think that if you know you've thrown fastballs recently, you might be more inclined to throw something else. So I think that there would be more fastballs you definitely wouldn't have the same like fastball you wouldn't have the same tunneling you wouldn't have the same changing eye levels and all that stuff so it would be mm-hmm. a problem but probably a, the biggest problem for the the team's trainers because they're not trained in neurology i don't think but this would be <laughs> yeah. of grave concern i think that you would you'd have to believe there was something poisoning the the, the water because if so many people are afflicted someone would have to notice at some point right Yeah, it's like the guy from Memento, except he's pitching, and he, I guess, is not tattooing himself or writing on himself to say what pitch he just threw. And I think that, I mean, if you know that you're forgetting, you don't forget that you're forgetting. 
then you wouldn't just throw fastballs because you'd know that you'd want to vary things up a bit. And so I think you would still vary your pitch selection, probably not in an optimal way, although maybe sometimes in an unpredictable way that would benefit you. But also, you know what the count is, presumably, because you can still see and you can look at the scoreboard. So count dictates your pitch selection to a certain extent. So you're probably still going to have the guy throwing, you know, more breaking balls when he's got two strikes or something like that. So it might not be that different. And maybe there would be some element of surprise that comes in here. We get the question about like randomizing your pitch selection often, but this is not that. So I think he would be worse, but maybe less worse than one would expect. That's fair. Okay. And then we've got one from Sean. I've been thinking about the conversations teams are having about player self-care, like proper rest, nutrition, relaxation, etc., as a way to ensure their players are at peak performance on the field. What if, as these ideas continue to be explored, Mike Trout completely and totally buys into the importance of a proper sleep cycle and decides that he has a strict bedtime of 10 o'clock p.m. local time? In order to do this, (laughs) Trout states that he needs to be off the field by 9 o'clock at night. How much does this affect Trout's value? Obviously, afternoon games wouldn't be an issue, and presumably there might be some sort of effect where Trout's performance is better when he is on the field. But you wouldn't have Trout for some incredibly high leverage innings, and he'd be almost a non-factor in the playoffs. Hate to tell you about this, Sean, but he's almost a (laughs) non-factor in the playoffs right now. How much do you think this changes Trout's value and perception? Very significantly <laughs> yeah uh, maybe maybe like 50 years down the road you'd look back and think that he was just being progressive and and doing the most to preserve his own health and uh and valuing his longevity over everything else but i mean what i don't have the numbers off the top of my head but what percentage of his games start at seven o'clock local time on the west coast i mean even if every game start at seven o'clock no matter where you are for the most part mm-hmm. unless you're playing a, a matinee so i don't know what is that 80 percent 85% of yeah, all games, probably. maybe even more than that. I don't know. You're excluding yeah, so Sundays, but... He's basically good through the sixth inning or so, and then he's gone. Yeah, and I don't know where he lives relative to the stadium, so he has transit time he has to take into consideration. He also needs like, some unwind time because he's probably not going to be able to fall right asleep as soon as he gets to bed. He's got a shower. He's got a floss. That's two minutes. you got to brush yeah. your teeth. He's yeah. prob- if he's this careful about his sleeping habits, he's probably careful about flossing and brushing his <laughs> teeth. He does it for at least the two Sonicare minutes it always recommends. So yeah. Mike Trout, he's leaving the ballpark by, I don't know, 9 at the latest mm-hmm. in order to get home probably like 8.30, which with current paces of games means he's in like the middle of the second inning <laughs> that he's going home. So this would be very, very bad news for the Angels, and he'd still lead the team and wins above our <laughs> He probably would, yeah. And the I guess the one caveat is that if he needs to be home and in bed by 10 o'clock West Coast time, then maybe he's still good if they're in a different time zone. I don't know whether he's taking that into account or not, but if he wants to stay on a consistent sleep cycle, then maybe it's okay if he's playing a 7 o'clock game on the East Coast and it's a 4 o'clock start time Pacific time zone. Maybe. Maybe you get around it that way. But yeah, this is this is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. This is from Mitch on the Fox broadcast of a recent Yankees-Mets game. Didi Gregorius was described as, quote-unquote, climbing into the batter's box. 
How different would baseball be if the chalk lines defining the batter's box were raised by a few inches? What if the batter's box were raised by a few inches so guys would have to go down a step as they ran to first? So the batter's box is basically a platform in this scenario. Well, you would get a slightly better rules enforcement or obeyance because players would be less willing to stand on the raised lines to if they were out of the box. So, you know, hitters aren't supposed to be out of the box when they're swinging or bunting. You'll often yes. see this with bunts. Some swings, some stances. So if the lines are raised, that would increase the discomfort of doing so. So maybe that would be good. If, if they were raised, what was it? You could run, you'd have a slightly downhill angle to first base if the whole mm-hmm. platform were raised. Yeah, uh, you'd have a lot more people tripping. I think yes. tripping and falling out of the box, so that's bad for it for health, but great for jiffing. <laughs> Climbing into the batter's box, where would that even, where would that come from? But I, I think I've I, heard that, right? I've, I've definitely heard, heard it, but as I think yeah. about it, it's ridiculous. It is strange. <laughs> it is pretty strange. Yeah, you'd also, I mean, no one could slide into home plate, right? If you did, you just stub your toe on the batter's box platform border. <laughs> so that would be an issue, I guess. You'd you'd have fewer runs scored because, yeah, you'd have guys tripping and stubbing their toes and pulling things. So more injuries. Can't really think of an advantage to this. Now, if the catcher's box is not elevated, I don't know whether the catcher's box also would be, but if you had the catcher at a different eye level than the batter or different foot level, that would also be weird and maybe would make it hard to receive high pitches. So that's a problem. Then you've got the umpire. If he's not elevated also, then he's probably going to have a harder time judging the strike zone. He's going to be blocked in some sense on pitches that are in the strike zone. I can't think of an advantage to this scenario. (laughs) Yeah, neither can I. All right. So we will end there. So that will do it for today and for this week. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount. James M. Gannon, Michael Edler, Michael DePrima, Evan Cleave, and Zachary Levine. Thanks to all of them. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. And please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcastofhandcrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We may have a slightly unusual schedule with the holiday next week, but hey, we had an unusual schedule this week too. We'll get our three episodes in. We always do. So we will talk to you then. Hey!